Today's reading is taken from Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 31, which is found on page 1053. Uh, that's Luke 18, starting at verse 31, page 1053. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be turned over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting on the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. This is the word of the Lord. So um, we're, <laughs> we're back in um, Luke uh, chapter 18. Uh, so it'd be very helpful if you could keep that open. We've also got an outline on the back of the service sheet of where I hope we're going to go over the next few moments. Let's pray, though, as we start. We just sung these words, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. We pray, our gracious Heavenly Father, that as we look at these words of Jesus now, that we would be singing that chorus as a response, that we would sing of his marvellous love for us. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, we've been in the Gospel of Luke over the last few weeks, and um, you'll see from the Gospel of Luke that it's not a Gospel that's short of surprises. But perhaps our passage this evening contains the biggest surprise of them all. Now, you might have missed it when it was being read, but uh, I think it's there in verse 34. 
Uh, if you've closed the book, it's, uh, the Bible is on page 1053. Verse 34 says this, The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he's talking about. Now, why is that so surprising? Well, look at what comes before. Just glance over that. You'll see that Jesus is speaking about what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He's going to be tortured. He's going to die and then rise. But, verse 34, they did not understand what he's talking about. Before I was a Christian, I, I kind of got the impression that the disciples were um, model Christians. Um, I mean, I knew that I kind of got that Jesus was superior, but I thought the disciples were kind of a stage down. They were kind of championship level Christians. But look at where they are in verse 34. See, these 12 guys who have the closest guys to Jesus, who had traveled with him for years, who heard Jesus' teaching from Jesus' mouth. Just imagine that. They get to the end of Jesus' ministry and they don't understand And this verse is made even more shocking if you think about what's come before over the last couple of weeks, because we've seen that the ones who don't understand are Jesus' opponents, the ones who end up killing him. So this verse puts the disciples in a very bad company, in the same camp as those who oppose Jesus. Now this verse starts to get under your skin a bit, doesn't it? Because I don't know about you, but reading the gospel, I naturally assume that I'm someone who will understand. I mean, I I think that as he speaks, I will understand his message. But this verse gets us to think again. Because the 12 followers who have had Jesus' words from his own mouth do not understand. And I'm assuming by that that Luke doesn't mean they didn't kind of comprehend. That that they would have heard Jesus' words. It wasn't like they, they didn't understand his language. But he means that there was something in them that meant when Jesus spoke of his death and resurrection, they just could not see it. That's what starts to get under your skin, doesn't it? Because if these guys were unable to hear Jesus, but these guys who were unable to understand Jesus, what about us? What makes us think we're any different? In fact, as you continue reading, Luke shows us the shocking thing, which is that we're not any different. Let's have a look under this first point, the first point on our handouts, two blind men reveal our blindness. See, Luke doesn't say much more about the disciples for now, but um, the action immediately focuses on a blind man uh, in the, the verse 35 onwards. Now, this blind man is at the bottom rung of the social ladder. He cannot see, so in this culture it means that he cannot work. And so he places himself on the Jericho High Street, begging for money. And every day he hears a steady stream of people go past, and occasionally a a drop of a coin in his basket. But today he hears something different. It sounds like a football crowd approaching And he asks what's going on, and the crowd say that Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And he thinks to himself, here is my chance for a change. And he cries out so his voice would be heard above this noisy crowd. He says, Jesus, 
Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd try and shut him up, and, but he shouts even louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, what's going on there? Well, look at what he's saying. See, he is the first person in this entire gospel to call Jesus the son of David. Now, why does that matter? Well, David, uh, as many of us will know, was the king back when Israel was at its high point, at its peak. And at that point, God promised a descendant, a son to David, a son who would come after him and rule over God's people forever. Now, the interesting thing um, when this promise is made back in 2 Samuel 7 is that this king after David would suffer. But despite his suffering, he would inherit an eternal throne. In other words, do you see this? The blind man is echoing the very promises that Jesus has been explaining to his disciples. See, there's real irony here in Luke placing this where he does, because the blind man can see, um, cannot see physically, but he sees more than the disciples do. See, this poor, blind beggar gets who Jesus is, gets why he comes, while no one else does. But I said under the talk point that there's two blind men. So where's the other? Well, the action continues in Jericho itself, where we meet Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and um, this is the point where preachers normally make a joke about tax collectors being a bit of a pain in the neck and being a bit mean. But in this culture, tax collectors were no joke. See, tax collectors took taxes for the Romans, and the Romans, being the enemy, were occupying the nation. I mean, it... It's not something you joke about. It's like siding with the Nazis in occupied Poland, feeding information back to the occupying force about your own people. And we're told Zacchaeus is rich, seems to be particularly good at his rotten trade. But for a reason we're not told about, Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming towards the town, but there's a problem. He's short and he cannot see over the crowd. Now, to be honest, this is difficult for me to empathize with. <laughs> there are a lot of problems with being tall, but seeing over crowds is not one of them. In fact, it's when I'm in a crowd at a football match or in a gig or something like that that I thank the Lord that I have been made this size. But not for Zacchaeus. He wants to see, but he can't. His height prevents him seeing Jesus. Now, do you start to notice the similarity between these two men? See, both cannot see. Jesus is near them, but they're unable to see him. Now, why does Luke tell us that? Well, what has come at the start? See, Jesus has spoken about his death and resurrection, but the disciples cannot understand. See, in other words, these two individuals are both a physical picture of the spiritual reality of the disciples. See, the disciples may have functioning eyes. They might be tall enough and close enough to see Jesus uh, with their eyes. But in terms of really seeing Jesus, of seeing what the cross really means, they're like the blind beggar. They're like Zacchaeus. And Luke puts this here 
to show us that this is what we're like. We cannot see Jesus on our own. We, we cannot understand the glory of the cross on our own. But you come back to me and you, you say, well, of course I can. I, of course I can understand Jesus. I, I can read about his death and resurrection in the Bible. I, I mean, you said that I can't understand that. Well, remember, it's not that simple, is it? Because the disciples had Jesus in front of them. And they had Jesus explaining about his death. But they still couldn't see. They still couldn't understand. See, their problem is not access. Their problem is perception. There is something in them that means there's an inability to recognize Jesus. See, to them, they looked at the cross and it just didn't make sense. I was uh, working in um, Canary Wharf in London back in um, 2008, and you'll know, lots of us, that the 2008, towards the end of the year, was the kind of climax of the financial crisis. Now, that crisis, uh, it's hard to get data on it, but in the U.S. alone, it caused the loss of $13 trillion. Now, that is the size of the whole of China's economy, and that was just the U.S., and I was there on the day in Canary Wharf, I remember it well, when thousands of people were streaming out onto the streets of Canary Wharf from Lehman Brothers. There was a big tower, and they were all coming down with boxes with all their office possessions in. That was it. They were without a job. The firm had gone bust. Now, the reasons for the crisis are multifaceted, and people debate them. I'd love to talk to you about this. Uh, come and grab you afterwards. But um, people debate the different kind of causes of the, the crisis, but every commentator agrees on one thing, which is that the warning signs were there to see. The information was not hidden. See, the most shocking thing of this crisis, which caused untold um, difficulties and sufferings across the world, which we're still kind of suffering from today. The, the shocking feature of that was that almost everyone missed what was right in front of their eyes. I, I remember after the event, reading some of the accounts of the firms that had collapsed and thinking, look, the, the signs are here in black and white. How did no one see this? See, that taught me, and it should teach us, that we're not neutral kind of information processors. There's something more that goes on in us. See, sometimes we can be blind without even realizing. Which means that even the right data cannot be seen. When it comes to Jesus and the cross, we're the same. See, the data is there, but we won't grasp it on our own. There's something in us that prevents us seeing what is really there. I mean, I, I like to assume that I'm, you know, if I get the right information, if I see all the facts, that I can kind of make a balanced opinion, the rational choice. But Luke says, think again. There's something in us that covers our eyes, even though we think we see. See, without the Jesus, without Jesus, we're like the blind beggar. We can have Jesus right in front of us, but we cannot see him. I wonder, do you realize that? See, your, your problem is not just your sin, as serious as that is. Your, your problem is not just your idolatry, the fact that you turn to other gods, although we do. 
See, our problem is much, much deeper. Our problem extends to the, to the fact that we cannot see that even when salvation is right in front of us, there's something in us that prevents us from taking it because we cannot see it. See, the disciples had the message of the cross described by the one who went to the cross and they couldn't see it. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of explaining the Christian message to a Christian friend and you think you've done an okay job. Yeah, okay, it could be better, but you've explained to them the cross. You think you've been clear, and they just don't get it. Well, it's no surprise, is it? I remember my own kind of journey to becoming a Christian was, was like this. There was, a, there was a point at university about in my first year where I, where I could explain to you the kind of mechanism of the cross. If someone came to me and said, what, what makes a Christian? I would have been able to give you the right answer. You might have even thought I was a Christian. But there was a big difference, probably 18 months, between me being able to explain what the cross was and what it did. But there was a big chunk chunk of time between that and me being able to actually see the beauty of the cross for myself. Now, why does Luke tell us this if we can't understand? Are we kind of just trapped in this blindness? Well, I'm pleased to say we're not, and that we see this under our second point. See, these two miracles we're going to see reveal our need. See, each of these two men who cannot see encounter Jesus. Um, let's go back to the blind beggar. He, he shouts out, as we saw, and Jesus stops. And Jesus asks that the blind man is brought to him, so the blind man's guided through the crowd to Jesus. And Jesus asks in verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? Now, when Jesus asks that, it's not because Jesus doesn't know. Jesus already knows, but he wants the person to recognize their problem. And that is what the blind beggar does. He knows his problem. He knows that without Jesus, he will never see. So he asks to recover his sight. And with a word from Jesus, this man is able to see clearly. But the point says that there's two miracles here, and you might wonder where the the second miracle is, because Zacchaeus, on first look, doesn't look like he's had his eyes opened. But look again. Now, we left Zacchaeus up in his tree, but um, uh, in the account, Jesus walks up to Zacchaeus and looks up to the tree in 19 verse 5, and he says this, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. See, Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name, even though he's never met him, and he uses Zacchaeus' house as an Airbnb. Now, you might say, look, I still don't see a miracle. But look more closely at verse 8. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, Zacchaeus responds in the most surprising way. He gives half of his possessions. Now, Jewish people were expected to give 10%. If you were really pious, if you're really going for it, you would give 20%. Zacchaeus gives 50%. And he promises to put right everything he's done wrong. I mean, just imagine that happening. Just Imagine this most hated person by the community in the most despicable trades. I mean, just imagine like a a rich drug dealer. 
suddenly saying he's going to give his cash away. Suddenly saying, I'll do my prison sentence. I will put back right all the misery I caused in the past. But we've still got to ask, where's the miracle here? Well, look at what Jesus says in verse 9. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Now, it's not obvious, but in the original, um, the word for salvation is the same word as the word for healing. So Zacchaeus is saved, but actually it's the same word used for the blind man. The blind man is also saved. Now, why does that matter? Well, Luke wants us to see that there are two miracles here. Just as Jesus opens the eyes of the blind beggar so he might see the salvation that is on offer for him, Jesus also opens the eyes of Zacchaeus so he experiences the salvation Jesus brings. Now, here's the point. How is it those two miracles come? How is it they both see? Well, 19 verse 10 gives the answer. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. It's Jesus. It's Jesus who finds them and saves them. See, without Jesus, we're blind. We're left trying to see. We're left in the dark when it comes to salvation so that we cannot understand it, even if it's in front of our eyes. But here is the glorious news of the gospel. Jesus has not left us as we are. He cares, and he comes and seeks his people and gives them sight so that they can see the cross and understand that salvation comes through it. These are the first words of Jesus in this gospel. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind. And here we see him do it. Jesus comes to seek us, give us sight, and save us. You may remember back in 2010, um, that wonderful story about the Chilean mine collapsing. That wasn't the wonderful bit. That was, that's coming later. But this uh, mine in Chile uh, collapsed. And it left about 33 miners trapped in the dark, complete darkness. Could not see. Could not move. Couldn't get out. And for, for days, the rescuers tried to get to them. But every time they did, a bit of the cave collapsed. And there were setbacks after setbacks. But after 20 days the rescuers managed to put a little probe through. And it meant that they could send messages, and it meant that they could send supplies. And over the weeks, a larger hole was drilled, and a rescue capsule called the Phoenix, I love that, was designed that would lift the miners to the surface. And you probably remember the pictures. Nearly two and a half months later, the first miner boarded the capsule and was lifted to safety. They began the 15-minute ascent and when he reached the surface, he was greeted by the president. And the president's first words were hit to him were, welcome to life. See, without Jesus, we're in the dark, unable to lift ourselves out, unable to understand the cross, unable to see its glory. But Jesus doesn't leave us like it. He comes and finds us, lifts us out of darkness, gives us eyes to see, and welcomes us to eternal life. Now, I don't know about you, but this is often 180 degrees to how I often think. Often, 
we can speak, and I do it myself, of, of us finding Jesus. Uh, people say things like that, don't they? Like, uh, back at university, I found Jesus. Or when I was five, I invited Jesus into my life. But it's not about us inviting or finding. On our part, Jesus does it. He comes to find us. He comes into our lives. He seeks and saves, not us. But you say, well, don't I have to ask him first? Don't I have to pray a prayer and then he comes and finds me? Well, the only reason he, we can pray a prayer and ask him is because Jesus enables us to. He opens our eyes. It is a response to his work of seeking us and saving us, not us seeking him. Now, if you're a Christian, this should deeply humble you. It does me. See, it should humble us because the only reason we see the salvation Jesus brings is because Jesus has found us and given us eyes to see. See, I think I fall into this. It is possible to kind of think we've done it, even when it comes to the good news of the gospel, which is all about God doing it. Uh, perhaps you've grown up in a Christian family, and, and when you were younger, you, you made your parents' faith your own faith. Now, I can't think of a greater gift. That's wonderful. But it comes with that, the danger that you think you've done the right thing. I found Jesus. And you forget there's Jesus who really found you. Or perhaps uh, that's not you. Perhaps you've looked into the Christian faith for yourself and you did lots of exploring, you asked lots of questions, you, you responded. But because of that, you think you've done it. And you forget that it's really Jesus who found you. Now, I wonder whether Christianity might avoid some misunderstanding if people knew this and really felt this. See, the, the biggest complaint I hear from my non-Christian friends is not actually about Christianity's ethical teaching. That's a surprise. See, the biggest thing I hear is that Christians are arrogant, or they look down on others with pride. Now, sometimes that complaint is unfair, but sadly, there are cases where that's true, and I include myself in that. I've made that true sometimes. But if we grasp this passage, the opposite should be the case. The Christian should be the most humble because their only claim to salvation is the fact that Jesus has found them and opened their eyes. What did Moses say to Israel as they took possession of the land? Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me to possess this land. But I don't want you to see this passage just as a corrective. It's, it really is an encouragement because it means that Jesus cares enough to seek out and save his people who are lost. I love some of the details in this passage because it starts by telling us that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem to his death. Now, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you would you will know that this is the real climax of the gospel. Everything from chapter 9 has been gearing up towards this push towards Jerusalem. And now it's finally here. And, you know, you would expect this to be the moment where Jesus is self-focused, where he just focuses on himself and thinks about what's coming to him. You'll forgive him for that, for taking a bit of me time. But what does Jesus do in his final moments as he knows what's coming to him? Well, he stops to save a blind beggar. See, on the way to taking lashes, Jesus stops to stay at the house of a hated man because he wants to bring salvation. 
And it's what Jesus does. He cares so much about the lost that he forgets himself in order to save them. It's what we see in Jesus' final hours, even on the cross itself, as he lifted himself to gasp for air. How did he use those final breaths? Well, it was to bring salvation to a thief who was hanging next to him. And through his death and resurrection, he brings that same salvation to people like you and me. See, we're lost without him. We cannot see. But if we know him, it's because he searched us out and saved us. Well, as we close, what does this mean for us? Well, if we're not a Christian, this passage, I think, is, is very helpful because this is the essence of what the Christian faith is about. It's about Jesus' death and resurrection, where we start. But it's also about realizing that we cannot see that we need Jesus to give us sight. In fact, this blind man's prayer is the model response to Jesus. It's how we become a Christian. It's saying, Lord, I want to see. I mentioned earlier that um, there was a big gap about 18 months between me being able to kind of recite what the cross was about and then me actually seeing its beauty. And the thing that made the difference between those two uh, points in time was... Not a lot, really. It was just a friend of the family explaining to me the cross again, and I decided to take her advice and to pray. And so I closed my bedroom door, I got down on my knees, and I prayed a prayer like this that I would see. Now, if you knew me at the time, that was not a thing I would do. Very kind of self-sufficient, don't like uh, to do those sort of things. But it made the difference. Because as I prayed, I saw the cross in a completely different light, became less of a mechanism to me and more as a lifeline for me. Now, I realize that is a big thing to admit. It's it's hard to recognize you cannot see, especially if you're like me and you like to think you're self-sufficient and you can work things out. But it's only through recognizing that we cannot see that Jesus enables us to see. But what about us Christians? Would you realize that your only hope is that Jesus seeks and saves you? It might be, and we all do this from time to time, that we kind of get a bit puffed up in our own abilities, that we think, I've cracked this, I've understood this. Or it might be that we're at the other end of the spectrum, that we kind of feel deflated at our failures, that we just don't understand. Well, all of us need to keep coming back to this truth and standing on this, that we are blind but Jesus gives us sight. And do we have this understanding about others? Should we know looking down on others, thinking we're more superior? We're just like everyone else, unable to see on our own. Our only hope and their only hope is that Jesus comes to seek and save. I'll finish with these words from the famous hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. It was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Our Father, who is full of grace, 
We praise you for this truth that the Lord Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. Please comfort us with that truth. Please help us to keep coming to him as our foundation, as our confidence, as our boast. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see the world through these eyes, that you would help us to see that no one is lost, that all um, can experience the salvation Jesus comes to bring. And we pray, Father, for all of us that we would rejoice uh, for those of us who are saved that Jesus has come to seek and save us. And we pray in his name. Amen.